Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We've seen in recent days uh, what we've known to be true all along, and that is that a leader can have a tremendous impact upon uh, the nations or the world. And I do not mean by that our particular president nor the two parties that are operative in our country. I'm talking about the world stage. I'm acknowledging that a leader, for good or evil, can have a tremendous impact, which is why we are seeing the chaos in our world that we are currently seeing. Because one president, for reasons that I don't totally understand, has decided to invade another country. And as a result, the entire world is feeling that impact. Though, of course, none more than the people and the citizens of the Ukraine. If you read through the history of ancient Israel, you will find the same thing. Especially if you read the books of Kings and Chronicles. There you will find the leaders of Israel and repeatedly you will hear phrases like, Such and such a king was a good king, or more often, such and such a king was evil. And as the king went, so went the people. So when they had an evil ruler, they strayed from God as well. Only occasionally in those books do we read that a king was good. But the truth is, they weren't even supposed to have a king. God was to be their king. Israel was set up as a theocracy. That is, God was their leader, and God would communicate to them through his prophets. But they wanted to be like other nations. They didn't want a God whom they could not see to rule them. They wanted men and weapons to oversee them, and so they cried out for a king of their own. They came and cried that out to Samuel, the man we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And God told Samuel to allow them to have that king because after all, they were not rejecting Samuel's leadership, but they were rejecting God's. And yet God warned them that if you have a king like other nations have, you will suffer the consequences because at the very best, even in those good kings, they are mere men. And so there would be war and taxes, two things that most people don't like. There would be injustice and unrighteousness. And that is exactly what we see played out from the first king that Israel had to every king Israel had, except for the last one. The last king being the only true God's king. This morning we are going to look at two of the kings of Israel. We are going to look at the second king of the nation, and we are going to look at the last one, both of whom I think you will know fairly well. Two weeks ago, we talked about Samuel and God talking to him. This week, we move forward in our ancient encounter series to the second part of Samuel, that is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, as we think about God's king. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. 
And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for a dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I'm sure that you assumed when we began this series that certainly we would talk about David. How in the world could we do a series on great encounters or ancient encounters with God from the Old Testament and not include David, one of our favorite characters in the Old Testament? There is so much we could talk about, so much that we learned in Sunday school. I mean, who can forget the great battle between David and Goliath? Who could forget his victory? as a young man. In fact, we still remember it to the point that we talk about great victories with the underdog overcoming great odds. We talk about it in terms of David and Goliath. We could talk about his friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, the rightful heir to the throne, and yet David was knit to him as two brothers might be. We could go further and talk about his integrity when he was fleeing from Saul. Having been anointed king by Samuel, David is fleeing from Saul, and Saul repeatedly tries to kill him. David, having every right to, to self-defense, instead David says, I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Of course, we could also talk about David's great sin, something that he is well remembered for. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, a term that is virtually synonymous with King David, a man after God's own heart, committing one of the most famous sins in all of history. 
You might also remember the subsequent family turmoil that came from this. The son to be born to Bathsheba would die. Later on, one of David's other sons, Absalom, would rebel against him and strive to usurp him for the throne. Or perhaps David brings to your mind all of the psalms that he penned and the comfort that those psalms have brought to people, even to our own generation. It's clear that there is a lot of material that we could look at when it comes to this man named David, and yet it is somewhat surprising that Hebrews chapter 11 says almost nothing about him. We've referred to Hebrews 11 repeatedly in this series, but when it comes to David, this is all Hebrews chapter 11 says. It's at the very end, and the writer of Hebrews says, time would fail me to tell of, and then he begins to list some people. And in that list is David. That is all the writer of Hebrews 11 says about him. But as you can see, I have selected none of these events for us to look at this morning. I have selected the text we've just read because it is regarded as the theological highlight of 2 Samuel. In fact, many regard it as the theological highlight of all the historical books in this section of the Old Testament. And it is a famous Old Testament prophecy that all of us need to be familiar with because this is not just an encounter between God and David mediated through a man by the name of Nathan. This is an Old Testament encounter that holds a promise for all of us. But as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself. And so we need to start with the king's rest. Verse 1 tells us that God had given David rest from all of his enemies. We talked about that a few weeks ago with, the, with Joshua, how God had given them rest in the land. But the actual rest took a while to actually achieve. Much has happened between uh, that and the point we are at this morning in history. In fact, it's been 25 years since David was first anointed king by Samuel until we get to the point we're looking at this morning. And it's been some 300 years since Joshua first led the people into the promised land. But even at this point, Jerusalem is still not in their hands. In fact, it's not even called Jerusalem. It's called Jabus, because that's where the Jebusites live. But in chapter 5, just two chapters before what we read, David finally conquers Jerusalem and renames it Jerusalem, the city of David. And then in chapter 6, he defeats the Philistines and returns the ark of God to Israel. Then he builds his palace, and now he is in his city, in his palace, maybe on the veranda, sipping a glass of lemonade, finally enjoying some rest while talking to a man named Nathan. We know nothing else about this man. This is when he is first introduced to us in Scripture. Now, of course, we know him later as the man who courageously confronts David when it comes to his sin with Bathsheba. But at this point, we know nothing more than that he is a prophet like Samuel, sort of a, a national pastor. And now that David has some time on his hand to rest, the feverish activity has stalled for a while. David has time to think to dream. Maybe you had some of that this week on spring break, if you got a spring break. Some time to just sit back and, and think. Sometimes we think 
that that kind of time is a waste of time. That we're type A personalities, perhaps, as David surely was. But time to think and dream, as long as it's realistic, is not wasted time at all. It is necessary for future planning and projects. So David looks around, and he realizes he's got a city, he's got a palace, but God is still dwelling in the temporary tabernacle, something that's been around for 300-plus years now certainly is in need of some renovation, if not an outright replacement. And so he tells Nathan that he has a dream, and that dream is to build a temple, a temple where the ark could be held, and therefore a temple for God. Nathan, like any pastor, readily agrees. I mean, has there ever been a pastor who's told by a wealthy man that he wants to build a building, and the pastor says, no thanks? No, I've, I've jokingly said for years, if anybody wants to donate all the money for us to build a building, we'll happily do it and name the building after you. So Nathan immediately says, what a wonderful idea, King David. Let us do it. And it is now on the books. But before we leave the king's rest, I want to give you an early clue that there's more here than David sitting around during a lull in his activity. I've already mentioned that verse 1 states that he had rest from his enemies, but look at verse 11. In verse 11, God promises rest from his enemies. Okay, so which one is it? Is God already given him rest from his enemies, or is God going to give him rest from his enemies? And the answer is yes. Just like we saw with Joshua, there was rest, but that rest was a prefigure of a more fuller rest that was to come. And that is what we see here as well. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So from the king's rest, we need to look secondly at the king's residence. Technically, this encounter with God is not between David and God. It is between Nathan and God. But Nathan is the messenger for God to David. So that night, Nathan is told by God that, Nate, that David is not to build the temple. God has not asked for this. God has no need for it. And therefore, God says to, to Nathan to tell David that he's not going to build the temple. Throughout the narrative here, we see that God is in charge. God says, David, it is I who brought you from being a shepherd and made you prince over this nation. Now, we are not told here why David could not build the temple. We know it is a worthy desire or a worthy dream, but we're not told why. David does tell us this late in his life. In 2 Chronicles chapter 22, he is talking to his son Solomon, who in fact will be the one to build the temple, and he tells Solomon that the reason he was denied this dream is because he was a man of war, that he had done much battle and had much blood on his hands. And therefore, God had said that he would not build the temple, but someone else, his son, who would be a man of rest. There's that word again. He would be the one to build the temple. But there is a twist to this whole episode. While God denies David the desire to build the temple, he says in turn in verse 11 to David, the Lord will make you a house. But how can that be? We've already seen, or I've said it, 
that David has already built his palace. He already has a house. So how can God now say to David, you're not going to build me a temple, but instead I'm going to build you a house. In fact, this house that God is going to build is far beyond anything that David could have dreamed or desired. In other words, David comes thinking that he has this dream by which he is going to bless God. And God says to David, son, I'm in charge. And I'm going to turn this around and I'm going to build you a house that far exceeds anything that you could ever think about. You see, the house he's talking about here is not a literal house, but it is a dynasty. This is another covenant like the one we saw in the beginning of this series with Abraham. And like that covenant, this covenant with David is going to be faithfully fulfilled by God because God is a God who keeps his promises and fulfills his covenants. And this, again, is not just going to be for David. But according to verse 10, it's going to be for all of God's children. Again, this seems like a strange promise. They already have the land. They already have rest from their enemies. Which again clues us into the fact that there is a much greater fulfillment here than the city of Jerusalem or the denial of enemies or the promised land. And in order for all of this to come to pass, we need to see thirdly the king's relationship. By that now, I do not mean the king's relationship with God, but I'm talking now about the king's relationship with the son that is promised. Of course, we know that son to be Solomon who will reign as the third and final king of the United Kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom will be divided in two and multiple kings will rule. And it is this same Solomon, which we will look at next week, who will indeed build the temple for the Lord that David had the desire to construct. Now, what's interesting about this son that is promised at least from an earthly standpoint, is that his mother is none other than Bathsheba. Which means that God is going to use Bathsheba and her sin and David's sin with her. He's going to use all of that to bring about the fulfillment of this promise. Now, that does not mean that as long as good comes out of our sin, that it's really not sin. That does not mean that God is somehow minimizing sin, nor that we should either. I simply bring that up to show you that God can indeed bring good out of anything, and yes, that means even our own sin, and to highlight this Old Testament example of grace. How in the world could David's relationship with Bathsheba, his most famous sin, perhaps the most famous sin in history, be used by God to bring about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? And the answer is one word. It is the word grace. So God promises David that his descendants will be on the throne forever. And that God himself will have a relationship with his son. Which means there will be times of discipline. When those kings are disobedient, God will discipline them. And again, we know that that did indeed occur. But there is also the promise here of everlasting love. 
the promise that God will never depart from them. If you know the story of the first king, that is Saul, you know that his disobedience reached a point that God did in fact depart from him. That God took his spirit away from Saul. But here God promises to never do that again with any of the kings that will follow along in this line. Forever is a strong promise. A forever kingdom. A forever love. Jewelers like to remind us that diamonds are forever. But we won't be around to live to see that. We don't know. We do know that we can lose a diamond. We can lose the significance of what the diamond was given to us for. We even sometimes say, I, I had to wait forever. We know that's not literal. We're just using that word to mean it was a long, long time. It's actually hard for us to fathom what the word forever means because nothing around us lasts forever. In fact, increasingly, things seem to fall apart much more quickly than we think they should or as soon as the warranty expires. But here we have the promise of multiple forevers. And since they come from God, we know that they will be fulfilled. And so we believe them by faith. The Bible says on top of this that the Word of God will last forever. It says the people of God will abide forever. And we'll talk more in a moment about how that's even possible, given the fact that our bodies are decaying. But let's look at this historically for just a moment. David's dynasty in Israel lasted longer than any of the others, some 400 years. But by the mid-6th century B.C., there was no Davidic king sitting on the throne. Now, that's not forever. So, was God speaking like we do when we say, I had to wait forever? Was God just using that word to talk about a very long time, which indeed 400 years is? Or had God's promise failed because there was not a descendant on the throne of David and there wasn't for centuries? The people surely were asking these kinds of questions. Is God going to do something to fulfill his promise? Is there going to come someone, or has God failed? We don't, we don't know. Well, before I try to answer that question, I do want to remind you just briefly about the nature of Old Testament prophecy. I said earlier that this is one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament, and one that we do need to know. And it's a specific prophecy. We call this a messianic prophecy because it applies to the Messiah. That is, it is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, biblical prophecy in the Old Testament often had multiple fulfillments. That is, it, it had what we might call a near-term fulfillment or a future fulfillment. An immediate fulfillment, which doesn't mean instantaneous, but I just mean in the immediate future, or a long-term fulfillment. And that is certainly the case here. We've seen it in the fact that God gave them rest. We've seen that multiple times. They have rest. That's the immediate fulfillment. But there's an ultimate fulfillment later where God says there's a, a better rest to come. So the near-term fulfillment of this promise to David is, of course, 
the son that is born to he and Bathsheba, the son named Solomon, who would be the next king, and then all of the descendants that reigned on the throne for those 400 plus years. And as we've said, that's a long time, but it's not forever. So where is the king in the line of David who is going to reign forever? Well, that question leads us to our last statement this morning, and that is the king's reign. I told you at the outset that we were going to look at two kings this morning. One is David. He is the second king of Israel. And then I told you we're going to look at the last king of Israel. We've talked a little bit about Solomon, and he certainly was a king as well. But when I said we're going to talk about the last king of Israel, I'm talking about the king that is on the throne and will reign forever, and that is the king to which this prophecy was looking, and it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, I also talked about the nature of prophecy because I wanted, to, wanted you to see that that part of this is fulfilled in Solomon and ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. However, it says that when the king is disobedient, he will be disciplined by God. Clearly, that part does not refer to Jesus. For, that, for one thing, Jesus was never disobedient. And so there was no need for discipline. So you ask, how do we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this Davidic promise is in the person of Jesus? And the answer is because the Bible is full of that very thing. That is, there are all kinds of statements in the Bible telling us that that is exactly what takes place here. We don't have to look very hard or look very long to find this fulfillment. I told you a minute ago that surely the people were asking questions. Well, we know that because the Bible says it. Psalm 89 and verse 49 has the people saying, Lord, where is the steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is the fulfillment? Where is the king? That's what they were asking. Where is this forever love and this forever kingdom that you've promised us? Well, several Old Testament prophets repeatedly told the people that God had not abandoned his promise. Isaiah said this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah was acknowledging what it looked like during his life. And what it looked like during his life was a bunch of trees that had been cut down and nothing but stumps left. Reminders that there used to be trees there that were alive and bearing fruit, but no longer. But Isaiah says there is going to come a time when, those, when that stump starts to, to bear branches again, and that branch is going to bear fruit again. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Zechariah said, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. These prophets and others like them were urging the people not to forget the promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise that God was going to love them forever and have a king on the throne forever. And though it wasn't looking like it in their time period, these prophets were saying, just remember that God is going to be faithful to the promise. And then 
there was 400 years of silence. That's the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years where as far as we know, we have no word from God. But now listen to the very first words of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It's part of the genealogy. You know the part you skip? Because it's got names that you can't pronounce. And the ones you can pronounce, you really don't know who they are. So you just skip right over that and go to the part where Jesus is born. But Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Here in the very first verse of the New Testament, we are being told that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of a king who will be on the throne forever, which is why later in that genealogy, David and Solomon are both found. The title, Son of David, was the most common messianic title during the earthly life of Jesus because they were looking for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that's exactly what is coming to pass. Which is why when Jesus began his earthly ministry, the people were asking, could this be the son of David? But we already know that he is, and they should have as well. Because when you think back to some of the Christmas messages that we hear from time to time, when the angel came to Mary, giving her the good news that she was going to bear the Christ child, the angel says to her, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I could go on and on both from the Old Testament and the New. Because as I said, this is a very prominent prophecy whose fulfillment is very clearly given to us multiple times in the New Testament. This is not a puzzle of a prophecy that we have to piece together. It's right there for us, repeatedly, that God has fulfilled his promise. And that's confirmed in the coming of Jesus. When you think about heaven... What is it that you think about? We might think of some of the descriptions. We don't have a lot of them, but some of the descriptions in the Bible, the streets of gold, the mansions. Or maybe if we're honest, our first thought of heaven is the loved ones that we are going to be reunited with who have preceded us in death. And so we think about those reunions. Or maybe we think about uh, the pain and the tears no longer being a problem, the wholeness of the body, especially if you have a life that has endured a lot of suffering, that may be the thing that you think about. And there's nothing wrong with any of those answers. But if we go to the book of Revelation where John is given his great vision, what is the first thing that John sees when he has that vision? The first thing he sees is a throne. But not just any throne. John sees an occupied throne. And then if we fast forward all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we hear from the one who is on that occupied throne, and he says, I am the root and descendant of David. There is a king, and he does reign. He is the last king of Israel, and he will reign both now and forever. 
Which means that all the chaos that we see going on in our world is not the final answer. Just like the Israelites, when they had so many years of slavery and and silence, when they were asking, where is God and why won't God fulfill his promises? You may be thinking the same thing. Why won't God intervene in our world and stop the wars that are going on? Why won't God do something about famine and injustice and oppression? And I don't have the definitive answer for those questions. But I am reminding you that God is on the throne. The son of David has come to bring salvation to all who put their faith and trust in him. And he is coming again someday so that we may dwell with him forever. And I'm telling you, we'll be a lot better off if we'll remember that God's king is on the throne than whether we remember what CNN or Fox are reporting this morning. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you do fulfill your promises. Though they may not come in our time, and certainly as quickly as we might desire, you do what you promised to do. And you promised a king in the line of David who would love and rule forever. And that's exactly what you gave us in your own son. So we thank you, not only for our salvation, but we thank you that you rule and reign In spite of what it might look like, we by faith know that you are on the throne. And I pray that we would trust in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.